no election is steady. In fact, Joe, uh, Joe Biden's win on Super Tuesday was as much proof as any. It's not just where you spend your money, what states you campaign and all that. It's about the environment. It's about the, the information ecosystem and what's ringing true for people at that time. And that can change. And so that's why you gotta always be on offense in that space. Campaign manager and strategist Robbie Mook led Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. He is a lecturer in public policy at Harvard University, CBS News contributor, and president of the House Democrats Political Action Committee. In this week's episode, in conversation with Zoya Saroy and Judd Olenoff, he discusses how the presidential race has gone online during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is The Dive. We bring Harvard faculty to you for conversations on the most pressing issues in the news. Uh, can we kick it off? Yeah, let's do it. It's late April 2020. Could you rewind four years and take us back to late April 2016? What was happening in Clinton HQ and what were the main things on your mind? Oh, gosh, that is such a good question. And, um, you know, it all blurs together, particularly four years later, but we were still full on uh, running a primary, you know, uh, and you know, you think about New York and California, we were pretty all in on that. And that was in June. So that's a, that's just a huge difference for Biden right now is they in, you know, starting really in March, but certainly in April, they're, they're able to start planning uh, for the general election. I, I don't think we started having, you know, serious conversations, particularly operational conversations until May. For people who aren't familiar with how presidential campaigns are structured, could you explain just how reliant they are usually on in-person interactions day to day in every respect, whether it's knocking on doors, the staff working in person in headquarters and field offices, rallies, fundraisers, and so on? You know, uh, the, the, the most important thing for headquarters to do, because the election's not won or lost in headquarters, the election's won or lost in the states. So the most important thing you can do in headquarters is be really clear about your strategy, make decisions in a timely and effective way, and just move resources out, you know, and, and empower people to get the work done. And what I, what I think must be hard right now is when you're, when you're headquarters, to your point, when you can't just pull people in a room and say, okay, we got, let's make this decision, <laughs> um, when every meeting has to be over Zoom. That's, that's pretty clunky, so that's hard. That esprit de corps, that motivational factor is, is definitely blunted. Um, you know, the rally thing is interesting. Uh, a lot of reporters called me when, uh, you know, when COVID first came out and said, my gosh, this completely turns the campaign on its head. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, reporters experience the campaign very much through rallies, right? They're literally bussed around to see these rallies. Voters, you know, I don't know what the actual number is, 99%, let's say, or maybe, maybe, maybe 90%, whatever it is, of voters never go to a rally, right? They never experience the campaign that way. They experience it, um, you know, through their computer screen, through their phone screen, through their television screen. 
So which part of the campaign do you think working remotely creates the most challenges for? Like, how do you persuade voters and raise money, for example, if you can't do in-person events? I mean, you mentioned it's possible to reach people through their screens, but what do you see as the biggest challenges of adjusting to COVID from a campaign point of view? Yeah, I actually think we're seeing fundraising has not been deeply impacted. In fact, in many cases, I'm seeing fundraising is increasing. I think that's because people are opening emails more. Um, uh, they kind of, I mean, some people, I feel like their lives are complete chaos because they're trying to be a teacher for three kids in three different grades and do a full-time job and run the household. <laughs> so for many people, this is utter chaos. For other people, they do have more time on their hands than before. So I think they're there, that might be um, part of it. I actually think the hardest part about what's going on from the perspective of the Biden campaign is how do you drive the conversation right now? So when you take away rallies, you know, it was literally this built in podium every day that reporters just culturally are attuned to like at the top of your speech, you're going to make some news and I'm going to amplify that. And I get to, you know, replay you doing that. Um, and most people aren't watching that and can't see it themselves. So that was just built in that is now gone. So the campaign has to figure out new ways to make news and drive the conversation. Secondly, Trump, now has a pretty important, or rather, Trump's bully pulpit has only been increased in importance, right? We're in a crisis. Um, again, culturally, the press is sort of accustomed to um, hearing, you know, hearing those briefings and amplifying those. The, of course, the the challenge in the Trump era is like, when are you just amplifying propaganda versus when are you informing the public? That's that's the press's uh, kind of struggle every day. Um, and, and then, you know, lastly, because of the crisis, there's just less bandwidth for traditional politics, right? So when you put all that together, it's even harder than it's ever been to drive news. And then the other thing I would just say, like the big wrapper around this is Donald Trump's genius is driving news. So it is throwing chum in the water every single day that, you know, it's really hard not for all of us, not just the press, but just all of us as, as, as concerned citizens to, to get completely wrapped up in. So how does Joe Biden drive the news? I think that's really the, the, the hard part. And he, he, he has to do it sort of from his basement or you know, on podcasts or so on. Um, but it needs to be snacky enough. It needs to create enough friction that it, it drives kind of what we're discussing every day versus him just reacting to Trump. That is the central challenge. It's and by the way, as someone who's been, you know, in a presidential campaign, this stuff is so much harder than it appears. You know, it's very easy for someone like me now to just be like, well, of course they should just do this. And there's always a hundred reasons why it's not that easy. Um, and, and so I feel for that. I'm speaking to you from my home in Wilmington, Delaware. This pandemic has impacted every aspect of our life and every aspect of this campaign. Joe Biden has been in a TV studio that was rapidly built in his basement. It is obviously not the same as the White House briefing room and sort of the platform that that has.
You mentioned that most voters get their information from TV or radio or another form that's not them being there in person. However, before a candidate was appearing in a professional studio, etc. And now, as you said, they have to do everything from their basement. Do you think the visuals are a driving factor? No, I'm not concerned about that because, look, if anything, um, it's an opportunity to be more authentic. I mean, you always have to balance this stuff, right? Like, does is the lighting so bad that you look terrible, right? <laughs> like, maybe at that point, you want to, like, get some better lights in there. But, you know, for example, I think Joe Biden does, I think um, whatever setup he has, it, it's quite good, you know? Mm -hmm. um, the lighting's great and all that. Um, I think for many candidates, the opportunity to, you know, I'm working a lot with House candidates right now to address their constituents in that more um, authentic way, you know, through their, through their iPhone or something like that. Uh, I think it's fine. By the way, candidates for Senate and House right now are all facing this challenge where they're having to create ads for their campaign um with you know themselves with their iphone it's actually it's technology has made it you can film decent stuff now um, these iphone 11s in particular are so good so i think in all of this it's important to look for opportunity right and so the opportunity to be authentic the opportunity to break boundaries the opportunity to do things we've never done before i, I you know i i think there's a lot there and you mentioned that for Biden's campaign, uh, challenges uh, commanding attention in in the current time. And what's especially difficult is that um, we are in a national crisis where if you seek too much attention, you are accused of, of political opportunism. And if you sort of stay out of the headlines, then you're accused of uh, being recluse and, and um, not being uh, as present as you should be. How do you think the campaign should navigate the situation? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, what, that's what makes this hard, is uh, speaking of meetings in a campaign where you sit in a room together and there, the problem on a presidential is there's a million reasons not to do everything, particularly when you feel like you have everything to lose, right? That's, that's a balance the campaign has to strike between saying, yep, look, we're in theory, we're ahead right now, and we want to be the responsible actor here. But at what point, again, are we just allowing Trump to decide every day what we're talking about, such that maybe when we get a punch in the gut, people don't know very much about us, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the balance you have to strike. I think, I think the more important question is, again, is Biden driving the conversation? So there are actually ways he can do that without necessarily being explicitly critical of what Donald Trump is doing, right? He could have a conversation with a health worker that's particularly moving. He could, um, you know, he could have a conversation with a governor in which that governor, um, you know, pushes off on the White House and makes some news, right? I think there's a variety of ways they could look um, to create compelling content, in particular because it's not just about whether you get on the news, but whether you're getting shared, right? Whether your stuff is, particularly when you think about donors and volunteers, mm -hmm. um, they're going to respond to content um, that's getting trafficked around. And I think that's a real challenge for candidates nowadays. We certainly saw that in the primary. Joe Biden was not the king of 
uh, content getting trafficked, right? Um, but the folks that did the best at, at garnering resources, yes, it, they were. And so he needs to figure out, you know, how to um, start to uh, start to create that kind of content. It's really hard. And um, it's interesting because you mentioned that the, the current crisis or any crisis gives also opportunity for um, exploring new ways how to campaign. So talking about the old ways, what did you think that is or should be um, obsolete and sort of not a tool anymore in campaigning that was used until now? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of flip flip this on its head a little bit mm -hmm. and say that I think in some ways what old, what is old is new again now. Okay. So for example, um, given that we can't knock on people's doors anymore, I'd really be thinking about getting our volunteers writing letters to people. Right. right. Um, that's not something we really do much anymore. Right. Um, I, uh, it's very interesting. Polling right now has suddenly, we were, we were spending a lot of time talking the last few years about this crisis and polling where people weren't picking up their phones anymore. Um, and they weren't completing polls. They just didn't have time. Um, these response rate on these polls have gone up by huge orders of magnitude. So I actually think in some ways we need to be thinking right now about how do we reach back into our toolbox and maybe mm -hmm. use some of the things that we weren't using before? All that said though, you know, because people have more screen time right now, it's actually kind of this, uh, kind of this cool situation where we, where we need to do that reach back, but we also need to push forward. Right. So I actually think, again, I'm, I just have a very optimistic attitude towards this. It's like this cycle I think is all about innovation. And in that regard, it would be a really cool time in my opinion to be an organizer because you're kind of making it up as you go along. And so I don't know, that's an, I will keep thinking about that question. What is, what is obsolete? Um, uh, I will keep thinking about that. That is a great question. The Clinton campaign seemed to really value the science of campaigning, such as analytics and polling. How much do you think those things matter? How much of a campaign is about art versus science? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, look, the campaign, and I got a lot of this personally too, definitely got pegged as like, you know, we um, we only looked at data, we didn't use our gut enough, you know? And look, I, first of all, I think it's a really important discussion to have. I, I do think it, it got a little bit exaggerated um, in part because every virtually everybody's data was wrong and this was a surprise to everyone and so if you think from the standpoint of a reporter who was given a set of numbers you know the new york times needle or whatever said she had a i can't even remember what it was 75 80 percent chance of winning or whatever and so you're you're sort of told all these things that have been reliable and then all of a sudden that didn't work it's just very intuitive to say well clearly our problem was relying on all this other stuff I can tell you as a campaign manager, and I'm, and I'm sure most campaign people would tell you this, if your policy is we're just going to go on our gut, that is such a quick way to like, <laughs> just, just, just um, like 
have all your resources go out the door and like, what are you working towards? You know what I'm saying? And particularly when you think about the electoral college, um, you can't play, you know, some people just flippantly say, well, you've got to play everywhere. You can't. Like, I, I, I certainly want those things, but you, you can't, um, it's not possible. The resources are limited. And so you have to focus on what are the states that might, you might win or lose depending on your resource allocation. And then um, uh, how much do you need to win? And, you know, and a threshold question always for states was, can, can we win? And if we're not going to be able to bring enough to bear to win, we can't, we can't go there because we need to focus on the places where, where we can make a difference. You know, a perfect example is always like Texas or Georgia right now. Um, are we close? Yes, we are so close. And I think the margin in those states is going to be quite close. The question is, when are we at the point where we might uh, be able to actually win? And then the other thing you have to weigh that against is at what point in the electoral college are we going to tip into 270? Because whether you get 272 or 300 electoral votes, the outcome's the same, you've won. And so you really want to keep the resources focused around where you think it's going to tip. So I think the right question to be asking right now in the critique of 2016 is, you know, A, is the data we're getting back like good, right? Is it accurate? And I think steps have been taken the last few years to make it much more accurate. Um, secondly, where really is that tipping point? So if a state like Texas, for example, maybe shouldn't be at the top of the list in terms of resource allocation, um, when you look at the map, are there states that come to mind that um, you think should get more attention or resources than maybe conventional wisdom would say? Well, it depends on the convention, how we define the conventional wisdom. But I, look, I think what I'm seeing is, um, you know, Arizona, for example, is now um, a, a, a mainstay battleground state, which I think is right, particularly because Wisconsin is looking really tough. Um, and so Arizona actually creates a, you know, a replacement for Wisconsin, you know, if we were to lose that, I'm not saying we will today, but, um, uh, you know, and then, and then uh, the thing that actually worried me previously was that people were thinking we shouldn't play, for example, in Florida. But when you look at the number of electoral votes there, how close it was in 2016, um, you know, it was a point and a half. It's not, you know, uh, and, and, and by the way, in 2018, it was quite close as well. I recognize the loss is disappointing, but to just concede all those electoral votes to Trump makes his path so much easier. Um, you know, and, and North Carolina is another one uh, that I think is good that we're focusing on. And then of course, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, are there as well. And, you know, and there's states like Nevada, New Hampshire, there are others. Um, Minnesota was one I was concerned we weren't talking about enough, but I think, I think that's going to get the focus it needs. Um, you know, I think Minnesota could end up truly being one of the tougher states. Uh, um, so, no, I, I'm, I'm not concerned right now. I think, I think the big point I would say about Texas and Georgia is, Given everything we know right now, if we're winning Texas or Georgia, it's overwhelmingly likely that we're also winning Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Arizona, and so on, and we're over 270. 
And I think one of the challenges we had in 2016 was the race changed very dramatically um, late in October. And so we went from a reality in mid-October where we were doing quite well, right? Like if you think about how things were after the Access Hollywood tape came out and so on, coming out of the debates, we were doing quite well. It really tightened at the end. And so, you know, the strategy we we put in place in mid-October, you know, we would have we would have made different choices in mid-October had we knew where things would get to by late October, right? It's a classic example of, you know, the need to carefully plan for contingencies. So that's why I would just remain more, you know, if there's anything we take out of 16, it's like remain conservative, right? Like states that where you're five points up right now, you may not be five points up later on. In 2012, things just always stayed the same. It was such a stable map and that had, that was the last sort of cycle of reference. And so a big mistake I feel like I made was just assuming that any variation from that steady state was noise when I, in fact it was a real movement and we needed to, you know, we needed to kind of overreact to that. And I would urge the same thing this cycle. How do you invest in a state beyond just going there? You know, people say like, well, go, you didn't go. Right. But, you know, to your point, there were other states, you know, Pennsylvania, for example, where there was, there might've been heavy investment and yeah. still maybe the out, you know, the Clinton campaign didn't, didn't win. Yeah. So um, how do you, beyond just going, yeah. is it a matter of ad spend? What are ways that you can um, maybe change yeah. um, a state like Wisconsin? Yeah. I mean, look, this is, you're hitting the nail on the head. Cause I, I, you know, it's, it's, I'm not the best messenger for this, uh, obviously, but just thinking that showing up checks somehow changes things. It, you have to show up, of course, but if people don't like what you have to say, <laughs> you could almost do more damage by showing up, if that makes sense. Like, you know, engaging the race more is how we say it, uh, can sometimes actually do you harm. And so what the Biden campaign has to do is, to your point, ensure when they show up to Wisconsin, that they have something to say and that there's a story to tell that's going to gain support, not just, not just um, intensify opposition. And I think that was a challenge that we had. You know, Hillary had such a sort of toxic brew of things working against her. Um, Biden doesn't have a lot of those problems, but you know what he does need to watch out for. This is why driving the news is so important. He doesn't want the entire campaign to be a reaction because when he goes to somewhere like Wisconsin, that can just become an opportunity for some folks there to say, or let's take Michigan because they had all those protests to say, well, I'm pro-freedom and Biden's anti-freedom. And all of a sudden you're spending your time there sort of litigating on these other terms mm -hmm. rather than putting Trump on the defensive, for example, right? And so um, you really have to think about that. What are the organizing opportunities I'm giving the other side? Because by the way, we could, like speaking of numbers, you can just do that like with a computer, right? You really can. You can just say, where, where's the biggest swing? And I'll just show up to those places. But the deeper question is, what are we saying when we get there? If I'm elected president, my, my cabinet, my administration will look like the country. And I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. 
As Joe Biden looks more and more like the Democratic nominee, there's a lot of speculation over who he'll pick as his vice president. Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris, uh, Amy Klobuchar have been mentioned. Switching gears a little bit. Um, there are already names being floated for uh, Vice President Biden's VP pick. Can you describe the VP vetting process, how that goes, and then once you pick them, how you actually notify them, how you told Senator Kane and brought him in? Well, my philosophy on this always with Hillary, and, and by the way, there is no textbook or right or wrong answer on this. So um, th this is my approach, Biden, you know, Biden needs to have his approach. Um, but is like, there are three layers to the decision. The first is who do you think is ready to be president of the United States, should something happen to you? And as part of that, um, who will be a good partner for you? Someone you wanna work with, right? Because in addition to like being there in case something happens to you, this person's a huge potential resource when you're president, right? Um, so that's one. Two is, um, can they do, couldn't they do harm to the ticket, to your prospects, right? Is there something, you know, uh, is there some political uh, consequence to having to putting them on your ticket? And then um, third is, is there some political gain, right? Um, and that the reason I put that third is we really don't know that who you pick for VP brings anything at all. We all love it because it's a it's a thing. It's it's an exciting thing that happens. It's it's um you know, aside from the election result, it's almost like electing the vice president, right? So it's, it's really exciting in that regard. And then look, anytime you're putting someone on the ticket, it's this potentially really inspiring event. Like you, we, we have another leader, right? And particularly given um, the opportunity to have, a, it sounds like it will be a woman, could be a woman of color. That's just, I think, you know, for all Democrats, that's really exciting, right? And, and by the way, if, uh, Biden wins, that's potentially a future president, right? So there's just, there's just a lot of excitement wrapped up in it. But we don't know that any voter actually changes what they do based on who you pick. Most campaigns get down to three people. Um, we, like other campaigns, um, actually printed rally signs and made t-shirts for three different um, VP picks so that there's just no, and, and, and it was already known that those three were kind of the finalists. So there was no risk of it leaking out. Um, and then honestly, John Podesta just went and, and, uh, and uh, picked Tim Kaine up and they flew to a rally. I mean, it was, it was like that. Um, it's very, I, I, I'll never forget the stories that Paul Ryan told about having to like sneak out of his house because they hadn't found a good way to like, you know, once he found out, sort of extract him from where he was. We, we had, um, Kane was already on the road and we sort of caught him at the end of a trip. And then, so there wasn't the awkward like stakeout stuff. Um, it's actually but it surprising is, you can still pull that off in the age of Twitter. Yeah. Well, but it is, it is, um, I think for someone to go from being even a likely contender to becoming that VP pick, it is massively jarring. Um, you know, if you think of someone like, 
AOC, you know, when she was just running for Congress versus like today, or you think of like Pete Buttigieg, you know, when he was just mayor of South Bend to all of a sudden, like when he, um, you know, left his campaign, it's just your whole life changes. But for most people, that's a pretty gradual process. For these guys, it's all of a sudden you have 24, you have cameras up around your house, you have a security detail, um, people are mobbing you everywhere you go, your children. I think it's got to be particularly jarring for the family members because your children, you know, particularly if, if they're kids or, you know, or, or adults just out working and doing their jobs and living their lives, you were a senator and all of a sudden now you're this like world known political rock star. It's, it's pretty, pretty tough. Um, and you got to have a stump speech like overnight. <laughs> so that's another thing. That would be one thing. If you're on the list of three, like start thinking about that stump speech now. <laughs> I didn't know there were shirts for three. There, I thought there were shirts. Maybe we, I, I know for certain there were signs, but I also thought we made shirts. I know, I remember definitely on the Kerry uh, campaign. Former presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders has just endorsed Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. Happened moments ago, Sanders joined his former campaign rival on Biden's live stream. Yeah, Anderson, this moved pretty quickly. We're about five days after Bernie Sanders officially exited the race and suspended his campaign. And you just saw the video there. That visual of Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden together on the live stream really showing uh, the Democratic Party, both sides of it, unifying. That is something the Biden campaign was really hoping to see and has been very, very important for them. They have. Since we mentioned AOC, recently she, when asked about Biden, she was saying that. Um, it's clear he's not her number one choice and it's about mitigating risk, even though she's going to vote for him. And especially since the Democratic Party had so much fervent enthusiasm in the progressive wing of the party, how do you go about keeping that enthusiasm still if you have Joe Biden as your nominee? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and this is tough. I mean, look, I'm pretty, um, I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps to a fault uncompromising on one thing, which is Joe Biden, either Joe Biden or Donald Trump are going to win this election. And given that, Biden just has to win. And so I don't like to spend a lot of time thinking about reasons why Biden isn't good enough mm -hmm. or we shouldn't help him or we shouldn't like him. But, but um, aside from that, look, we, I, I, I have to give not just Joe Biden credit, but really Bernie Sanders credit. I thought, um, I thought Biden, Biden's campaign has done a very good job reaching out to Bernie, but I, I thought Bernie's, um, endorsement of Biden was so full-throated and generous. Um, they're, they're putting in place a lot of ways that they're working together, which is fantastic. And, um, and very different from last time. Yeah, you know, although the one thing I will say, um, it, there was a tremendous amount of policy engagement last time. I just don't think people heard about it. Like I've, I've had this with reporters, they're like, oh, well, you guys didn't talk to them. Or, I mean, I was talking to Jeff Weaver every single day. Um, I think what, honestly, the biggest difference from last time is there, you know, emails started to get disseminated starting in, I don't know if it was May or June, I think it was late May. And you have these emails dropped on the eve of the convention, not by the way, written by our campaign, but written by the DNC. And that's what everybody remembers. 
but um, but to your point, it is very different and much better. And so I think we just need to build on that. Um, but I do think we need to keep beating the drum as I think AOC is, which is, you know, beyond all, beyond all the disagreements we might have, the one thing we have to come together on is one of these two guys is going to win and we have to make sure that's Biden. Right. And what about the voters? If voters say they support you, does it matter how enthusiastically they support you or is support good well, enough? I look at this two ways. One is, um, yes, it does matter. I mean, what ultimately matters is whether people come out to vote. And again, if the dialogue around this is that somehow voting for Biden is like unsavory or something they didn't want to do, that's a problem. That's a hundred percent a problem. And I also think if the if the the prevailing dialogue is, I don't. Um, you know, I don't think there's a difference between the candidates or it doesn't matter whether I vote. That, that's a huge problem. So yes, that that is something we have to overcome. But again, I think the way to overcome that is to focus on what's at stake and how we're just faced with the reality here um, rather than sort of Put, put a series of ultimatums on Biden, if that makes sense. I, again, I guess my, my fault in this equation is I just feel so strongly that there were many people in 16 who said there's no difference between these people or I don't care who wins. And I, I just, so many people have suffered under this president. I, I really recoil at that attitude because too many people have suffered for us to think it doesn't make a difference. And, and going back to COVID a bit, um, I mean, the... The, China's role in all of this has not has been everything the candidates are talking about each other about. Um, do you think, and we, we've seen Trump sort of trying to link um, Biden with being weak on China, etc. Do you think the narrative of the 2020 elections is going to be about the blame game? Um, I think what Trump I think, I think what Trump wants this cycle to be about is whose side is, the, is, it, is each candidate on. And he is going to try to argue that Biden is on the side of China and not you. That Biden is on the side of the bureaucrats and the wonks in Washington, not you. Um, on the flip side of that, I think you know, Biden is rightly out there making the case that this president is not on your side at all. Um, and that what Biden's trying to do is going to make a much better difference in your life. And, you know, particularly when we look at this tax bill, um, uh, you know, and the way he's tried to take away pre-existing condition or protections for people with pre-existing conditions, everything that's happening around COVID economically and in terms of our healthcare system mm -hmm. speaks to the damage Trump has done and how much he's not on people's side. But that's why Trump is going to try to, no pun intended, trump all of that with these sort of notions about mm -hmm. China and Washington and all that and tie that to Biden. What are your thoughts on how the media covers presidential campaigns? Um, I think they have a really hard job. Um, I think Trump has taken the framework in which they were accustomed to working and really threw it out the window. You know, I didn't appreciate until Trump how 
much the media really and all of us right voters everybody the system relied on people having scruples you know and and sort of honor <laughs> um and i think the tightrope for the media continues to be um how do you accurately reflect the position and the views of both sides of this debate but not kind of prop up a bunch of um rumor or falsehoods or innuendo or provide provide a platform to make extreme views mainstream make them seem mainstream um, or make lies more truthful uh, and that's really really hard like if i was i i i know nothing about journalism school but you know if i was running journalism school i'd I'd be spending a lot of time thinking about how do we prepare journalists to navigate all this? These are ethical questions. You've done a lot of work on election security. Um, how concerned are you about um, election security in 2020, particularly in the context of a possible need for something like remote voting? Yeah. Look, I, I think the, the challenge with election security right now is less about what to do and more about just mustering the resources and and commitment and alignment to get it done and actually the other criticism i would put out there um and all of us deserve some of this criticism but honestly elections are run by states and it's the responsibility first and foremost of states to fund and administer their elections now Cybersecurity is is a particularly challenging issue where federal capabilities are important. So the federal government has an important role to play. But for every email we send to a federal official urging them to appropriate more money to elections, we should be sending three emails to the chair of the committee in your state legislature, which are a jurisdiction over the issue. They set the rules. They they budget money too, and I think states are in many cases chronically underfunding their elections just like the feds are that said we're seeing um we tend to focus on the bad actors there's also plenty of states democratic and republican that are working collaboratively and moving forward to make great strides on this and plenty of states that are allocating the money um you know west virginia is a um through the little bit of work that I've done on election security is one state where you have a tremendously conservative secretary of state. I don't know that I agree with them on very much of anything politically, but he's been outstanding um, on this issue. Uh, there are democratic officials who are not doing everything they can. So um, I, I, at the same time that I lament how partisan it has become, I think there are, there are excellent leaders on both sides ready to pick up the mantle at the point that we can work together more effectively on it. And if you were advising the Biden campaign, what would be the most important thing you'd tell them? On election security? No, more generally on, oh. on, on, on the campaign. Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, if I were managing the campaign, my, my top focus every day would be, are we driving content that drives the message? You know, are we part of the debate that's out there and how are we doing that? And I, I guess actually the, the reason, let me add one little piece on that. Yes, for one, but I'll give you two. The other thing is things can change. 
and I think my takeaway coming out of the 2012 campaign was that these presidential campaigns tend to be pretty steady. No election is steady. In fact, Joe, uh, Joe Biden's win on Super Tuesday was as much proof as any. It's not just where you spend your money, what states you campaign and all that. It's about the environment. It's about the, the information ecosystem and what's ringing true for people at that time. And that can change. And so that's why you gotta always be on offense in that space. Robbie, thank you so much for making time. We really yeah, appreciate it. Sure thank thing. You. Thank you guys. Good luck with everything. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on The Dive. This episode was produced by Paloma Strelitz, Zoya Saroy, and Judd Olenoff. If you enjoyed this discussion, please share it on social media. And we welcome feedback and guest ideas. Write to us at ideas at thedive.media.